This is a Federal News Network podcast. When the pandemic first hit, it had a big effect on the Veterans Health Administration. Among those effects, veterans had trouble getting routine health care appointments at outside facilities under the VA's community care program. For more on what happened, VA Deputy Assistant Inspector General Lee Ann Seawright. Ms. Seawright, good to have you back. Thank you, Tom. It's great to talk to you again. Now, in looking at this report, did anything actually surprise you about what you found? Because I think everyone everywhere going to any medical situation had a delay, especially the early days of the pandemic when everything clamped shut quickly. Right. I think actually the most surprising thing to me was that the delay in getting veterans scheduled for community care for those that chose to get scheduled didn't really extend beyond normal delays that BHA had experienced prior to the pandemic. It went from a 30-day average to a 42-day average, which as the normal citizen, we saw lots of delays in our care through the pandemic. So I thought that that wasn't actually all that extensive. It took me nine months to get back to my dentist. So you know, Exactly. A lot of things happen. But the metric for VA is 30 days between when a veteran calls a community care facility and when they get an appointment? Uh, Not exactly. The metric is when a veteran is approved for community care and then through that process, the community care department has 30 days to attempt to schedule the veteran. So their appointment could be beyond that 30-day window. So it could be anything from 30 plus one days to a couple of months, depending on the specialty or whatever. Exactly. And you were looking at routine appointments. That means everything except for, say, a COVID-related illness? Even just basic COVID could potentially be a routine illness, depending on the severity of it. So like dermatology or annual exams, primary care, even behavioral health to a certain extent could be considered a routine appointment, depending on the severity of the need. If it was something, say, you were doing regularly, like once a month or once a week, some sort of a therapist, then that could have been held back also. Right, exactly. And how did you go about the study? Because there are thousands and thousands of facilities. Where did you go for the data? So what we did is we looked at all of the routine community care consults that were outstanding as of October of 2020. And we did a statistical sample and reviewed about 225 of those open consults to see what VA had done. So whether they were contacting the veteran to attempt to schedule appointments, whether they were documenting that contact and offering alternative care. So telehealth became a big crutch to VA and really to the healthcare industry and providing care to personnel. And then we looked at whether they prioritized those appointments. So whether if it was a priority one to priority four to make sure that we got those scheduled as needed, depending on that priority. Because VHA itself in its own facilities pivoted to a lot of telecare, and we've documented that and talked about that, and that was a major effort. Do you get the sense that they worked to ensure that the community care, where possible, would be able to also pivot, if you will, to the telemethods? Through the consult process, what VA was trying to do was evaluate all those consults and see if there was an alternative that could be offered to the veteran, whether the alternative was actually to stay within VA and be offered telehealth within VA or whether telehealth was a viable option in the community. Telehealth itself changed the format of that change through the pandemic. You know, what we used to be able to qualify for telehealth prior to the pandemic to now has advanced light years. 
We're speaking with Leanne Seawright. She's Deputy Assistant Inspector General at the Veterans Affairs Department. And also you reported that a lot of the veterans themselves were reluctant to seek care in the community, as I guess many, many citizens in general were worried they could get it, COVID, at those places, right. perhaps. Exactly. We had a decent population. So about 100,000 of the 476,000 consults that we reviewed, those appointments, we found either that there was hesitancy on the veteran side or they weren't returning calls to be scheduled or that there was unavailability in the community, whether they couldn't get an appointment or that provider was no longer providing services or had shuttered their facility through the height of COVID. So, you know, we found of those 110,000, about 60,000 of those were veterans who really didn't either return calls or chose to not be seen during this. Let's hope they brushed their teeth and flossed because you got to take care of the basic health yourself during all this time. I seem to be fixating on dentistry today. And also you reported that a priority system was set up, one, two, three, four, for different types of external appointments. And was that fully effective or were some issues with the priority program? Yeah, the prioritization was not fully effective, but it wasn't fully effective because when it was initially rolled out, it was really not required to be implemented So I believe they rolled out the prioritization in May of 2020, and it really didn't become mandatory until September of 2020. So each facility sort of took that prioritization, either didn't do it at all, or they did a different priority ranking, you know, maybe not a one to four scale, but a high, medium, low scale. And so it was really hard for us to determine or really we weren't able to determine whether that prioritization really worked or not. And all of this is interesting, but it's also a retrojection going back to a couple of years now. And as we speak, the pandemic seems to be receding and the mask mandates and all of it is kind of melting away and life could be back to normal in a few weeks, we hope. So are there any lessons learned that are applicable here or is this just an academic look at something that happened at a time and place? Lessons learned, I think the lessons learned is really that there are tools available to VA that would help them to monitor these consults a little more closely. So whether there's a pandemic or not a pandemic, you know, we want to ensure that through the scheduling process that veterans are being contacted for outreach and that those appointments are being scheduled and that VA has a requirement to reach out to the veteran twice if it's a normal appointment and four times if it's a mental health appointment to make sure that they're attempting to get those appointments scheduled. But the tools available to monitor whether those contacts were occurring and to document those contacts were somewhat lacking. So we really want to ensure that that continues forward. And then through all of this, VA has modernized a lot of their processes. They've modernized their consult toolbox quite a bit over the last few years. And through that, that has given them some more tools to be able to manage consults better as well. But again, it's about training their MSAs their schedulers to use that toolbox effectively and really to ensure that all those monitors and checks and balances are being leveraged to ensure that the veteran is getting the care that they need. And just a detail that comes to mind, the scheduling has to be through VA in order to get to a community care. That is to say, the veteran doesn't go directly to that community care place for his or her appointment. Uh, No. So the veteran has to be approved or authorized for community care, but then the veteran is given the option to call and schedule their own appointment if they choose to do so. Well, maybe just clarify then how it does work that the veteran gets the appointment. If they call directly, what is the VA role here? Just maybe sort that out for us. 
So if they call directly, the MSA is still able to determine that an appointment was scheduled. And so through their monitoring processes, they can see that a veteran has an appointment. So they can follow up and ensure that care has occurred. Really, the process is that once that authorization is approved for the veteran to have care, then the MSA reaches out to the veteran and says, okay, we're going to schedule you for this appointment. And the veteran can, you know, what what are some good days for you? And the veteran at that point can make the choice. I'd like to schedule it myself. You know, just give me a list of options and I'll go schedule. And so then the MSA in the record would annotate that the veteran is self-scheduling. Got it. So one way or another, VA knows who's going where and when for medical care, even if it's outside into the community. I guess just to add this all up then, it looks like the pandemic was a pressure test almost of the community care system at the time when VA is still trying to establish excellence in it, you know, because it's not that old and the expansion of it from Congress. And so maybe this was a good way to find out where the pain points are, even though the pandemic has passed, as you say, they can still learn from this on how to keep it improving. I think it probably brought to light that there is you know, a level of dependency that we can have on community care and that, you know, in-house care is still necessary or still an option that we can fall back on as needed, you know, where VA can provide those services. I think it has definitely given VA an opportunity to work, like you said, work through some kinks in terms of better record keeping and monitoring those appointments as they occur. Leanne Seawright is Deputy Assistant Inspector General at the Veterans Affairs Department. Thanks so much. Thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Schedule the Federal Drive when you want. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses, and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy while although we were the little guy. Uh, And then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, As part of her job, she 
worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly 
gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then Let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.